0: it seems like just like with people there are places and elements that have their own qualities their own vitality so walking in a redwood forest which I was doing recently and here in the canyons you know there's these old beings that have been living for thousands of years and they have a palpable presence or we're standing by rocks by the ocean and they're being pounded and the surf is spraying and and there's a kind of aliveness and and, and, uh, Energizing quality. And, you know, in desert, for some people, desert's like really boring. But if we're there with presence, it's very beautiful and quiet and, and reveals its secrets slowly. And, you know, so every landscape has its own gifts if we have the presence to slow down, to tune, to open up the senses, to feel.
1: Hi. And welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today my guest is mindfulness teacher, wilderness guide, and author Mark Coleman. Mark is the author of Make Peace With Your Mind, how mindfulness and compassion can help free you from the inner critic. And Awaken the Wild, mindfulness in nature as a path of self-discovery. We spoke about the unique path that brought Mark to mindfulness meditation and how presence awareness lies at the heart of the work he does. Yes, there was a phrase that uh, that I came across in, in reference to your, your book, Awake in the Wild, and that was nature deficit disorder. Mm. It seems like it is endemic that we all suffer from this lack of connection in our in our modern day world with nature.
0: Yes, more and more so, and particularly the, the, the last couple of generations where, and particularly this generation that's growing up. You know, with complete immersion in technology from the age of, you know, we kids have phones now as young as, you know, four, five, six. It's kind of remarkable. And so we have increasing urbanization, increasing use of technology and screen time, and increasing fear of children being left alone and supervised outside. And you have those, that sort of trifecta effect. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and there's also a, a, a mass urbanization. Uh, happening where people are shifting to the cities. So, yeah, so the, there is a growing nature deficit disorder, which Richard Louv coined as a, as a, as a diagnosis. And, um, you know, I think many psychologists and, and teachers would say, yeah, that, that actually has a detrimental effect to children's learning, attention, social skills, um, aliveness, um, creativity. Um, and so I see my work as part of... One of the counterforces to try and help people re-immerse in nature, but also with a twist. With the twist is, um, how do we spend time in nature, relate to the natural world, not through doing it? There's a lot of doing nature, like we, you know, we, you know, we <laughs> conquer the mountain and we beat our best time on our mountain bike and we ski down something and. And it's all fine I'm all happy. I'm happy for whatever people do in nature but I think often what's missing is this more contemplative approach that I've you know learned through you know decades of meditation practice and what I see lacking is people often don't know how to be in nature, right? Either don't know how to be there without phones and photographing everything <laughs> or, or talking and just missing everything because we're lost in conversation or we just, we're so mentally, you know, obsessed. We're so, you know, preoccupied with our thoughts and worries and plans that even if we are there without people or devices, we're still hard, hardly there because we're just thinking the whole time. And so the point of my nature-based contemplative work is how do we also work with the mind and cultivate attention and and presence and mindfulness so we can actually really be present and really receive what's there, you know? So here I am teaching at Esalen and integrating these two, right? Helping people cultivate mindfulness, awareness, and uh, present moment attention and then we shift from indoors to outdoors, and we take that attention, that awareness, to the sublime beauty here—the ocean, the skies, the flowers, the birds—and people are profoundly impacted because there's a different quality of attention. Right? We're not trying to, you know, have an experience or photograph it, or um, you know, just notice it incidentally and then get back to our. Phone or book or whatever, but actually really immerse and let that experience saturate and 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 feed us and teach us.
1: I've thought I've thought a lot about the the nature of Big Sur, because it is so sublime, as you said, and just sort of you know I'm thinking out loud here, but just sort of wondering: is all nature created equal? Does some nature? give more access to the sense of wonder because of the aesthetic qualities of it? Because to me, I would think if we're coming at this from some egalitarian point of view, you know, some rutted, ugly, brown, muddy path would would be as equal as going into this hallowed redwood canyon. But it seems somehow easier
0: here. Yeah, yeah. I think think ultimately... It, it can be equal, but the, the equality comes from the quality of presence, mm. that when we're in presence awareness, then, you know, a brown muddy puddle can be beautiful, you know, or, you know, uh, you know, a, a brown field that's toasted in the sun in October in California. Um, and. It seems like just like with people there are places and elements that have their own qualities their own vitality so walking in a redwood forest which i was doing recently and here in the canyons you know there's these old beings that have been living for thousands of years and they have a palpable presence or we're standing by rocks by the ocean and they're being pounded and the surf is spraying and and there's a kind of aliveness and, and, and uh, you know, it's energizing quality. And um, so each I think, landscape has its own particular presence and quality, you know, whether you know, in desert, for some people deserts like really boring, but if we're there with presence, it's very beautiful and quiet and, and reveals its secrets slowly. And um, you know, so every landscape has its own gifts if we have the presence to slow down, to attune, to open up the senses, to feel. So what is it like for you,
1: as someone who values nature so deeply, finds it as a a source of refuge, to deal with the reports that we see about ecological disaster, what climate change will be like in the next 20 years, political leaders and... Certain countries are selling off rainforests. What, what, what has that
0: affected in your work? Well, it's created a sense of urgency. One of the reasons that I think we're, you know, we're facing this ecological crisis is because most people are not living with a very alive connection with the natural world. You know, we're in cities, we're in offices, we're in cars, we're in homes. And so we're not going out as much and the less we have contact the less real that relationship is with nature then the less care we have you know so my the basis of my work is this phrase we protect what we love that if we genuinely have contact with a person a place a landscape at some at, over time we fall in love we become you know enamored and deeply moved and by that connection and that It moves the heart to want to take care, to want to love, to want to protect and steward. And so my wish for my work is that I am able to bring as many people as I can into a very deep, immersive experience with nature. So they fall in love and they are motivated to step up and to steward, to clean up their own carbon footprint to you know raise hell with their congress people to engage in some way and um and i'm now in the process of training teachers to lead that nature meditation work because i want to grow the field as, as large as possible particularly with youth and underserved communities and helping you know everybody get out their leaders business leaders to be moved and to want to engage and act. And so I feel tremendous uh, imperative because we're facing this ecological catastrophe. We're walking towards a cliff and there's still not the political will to really scale what we need to do. We, We have the technology, we have the solutions, and they need, you know, scaling and commitment and, you know, there's a possibility of not, you know, getting to, you know, two degrees raise in temperatures. For example, if there was a massive global waking up and political and business will, and, um, you know, it's growing because the climate crisis is growing and people are seeing the, not just a um, an ecological crisis, but it's an economic crisis, it'll be a political crisis, it'll be a social crisis, and the cost will be, you know, unimaginable. So I take heart that people are waking up, but it's still too slow, and we still need to rev up that responsiveness. Yes, there's an interesting tension
1: here. I, I'm, I'm no expert on Buddhism. I've sat at some week-long silent retreats at Spirit Rock, where you're a senior teacher, and gained much out of it. But one of the things I've gleaned from the teachings of Buddhism is this kind of idea around accepting and gracefully being with what is. And I think about that as being somewhat in tension with being someone who bucks the political system, someone who raises hell with their congresspeople, someone who's out there demonstrating. And I think what I'm hearing from you is that it's possible to engage with with one's uh, Buddhist ideals, but at the same time, be a person who does take action.
0: Yeah, I think... Um, you know, there's, there's a, there is a definite heavy emphasis in, in, in the Buddhist tradition of um, the qualities of equanimity, of letting go, of being with what is, of profound acceptance, of not struggling with the truth of reality. And that's all, you know, valid and necessary. And, but that's not the whole story. Right. And so one of the challenges is mindfulness has grown in popularity, which is sort of a cornerstone of Buddhist practice, the whenever you take a piece of the pie out of the pie, one doesn't see the whole picture. And so the challenge is where there's been a tendency to see mindfulness as just stopping at being with accepting, allowing, noticing. Right. Yeah. But in 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 the context of the buddhist path in the eightfold path the wise mindfulness is in context with wise understanding wise intention wise action which is how one moves in the world with ethically without harming um how one speaks how the, the kind of work that one does so the the mindfulness is in service of wisdom in service of action And ultimately, freedom for oneself and for others. Mm. Ideally, the clarity that comes from awareness allows us to see what's true. And then based on that perception, then one responds. And if anybody is awake at this time, we know what's going on. We know there's a crisis and what's needed is dramatic responsive action, which really is coming out of compassion for the world, for species, for the poor who are mostly going to be adversely affected at least in the first waves of climate change your path to meditation had this stop on it
1: and you you were a punk in the uk in your past and i was just i just want to hear about that who you, who you were
0: yeah so people often ask about that because i was definitely into the punk scene so i was in london in the early 80s and it was the height of the punk year and sort of post-punk era also mm and um very live creative energetic wild fun so there's different phases of of punk and i wasn't really into the super hardcore um diehard punk you know whether it's pistols or Stiffel fingers or some of these bands both here and in london I was really more into the, I would say, more of a post-punk era, which was a little more musical rather than just riffing on your guitar and exploding. And uh-huh. but there was a certain dynamism and aliveness. And mm. you know, growing up in England, which is, feels very, um, you know, everything's kind of stultified and and sort of slightly oppressed or very heavily <laughs> repressed. There was something about the punk music that was just such a breakout and also the the scene around it what I really liked was the freedom of expression like I made my own clothes I dyed my own hair I had a mohawk and I made earrings and painted houses in really wild you know styles and so that that whole busting out of the norm was very freeing for me and 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 liberating from that you know whether it's class oppression or societal oppression and you know, I needed that. And it was very creative. It was really fun. But particularly, I, I was drawn to the sort of anti-establishment component of it. The, there was a radical side of it. There was an anarchist side of it. And there was a, um, yeah, I just liked that spirit because I was feeling that too. I was, I had a lot of anger and frustration about about the political situation, about the economy, about the way I saw a lot of injustice happening. And and so it was a way of channeling that energy. What were some of the political issues of the time? In it was Thatcher's uh, England, yeah. I guess. So Thatcher was was the <laughs> the uh, the opposition, you could say, politely, <laughs> and um, and so she was in the process of dismantling the unions, so the coal miners' unions, and and really trying to bring in some sort of liberal forces um, to break some of the deadlock that had crippled England in the 70s and but doing it in a very somewhat draconian way and um, from my perspective very anti-working class, anti-unions anti, you know, more corporate driven and uh, there was a huge you know, as often happens in England this huge grassroots rebellion there was, I was involved in what was called the poll tax movement which was a taxation where she was planning to tax everybody the same, whether you were a billionaire or mm-hmm. earn twenty dollars, you know, a day, and so there was a huge movement around that. And so I was very involved in that. I was also very involved with the the squatting movement, which was uh, this movement. There was hundreds of thousands of empty houses in London at the time because mm-hmm. the mismanagement of the local authorities and councils, and um, and so it was like empty houses we were broke students let's occupy and so it was, it was kind of like a similarly occupy wall street mm-hmm. except it was occupy housing it was also occupy i was also occupy uh, the city of london where the financial institutions were but i um, uh, i got very involved in uh, the squatting movement as a as a way to sort of democratize housing mm-hmm. and I was also a broke student so that worked out too what were you studying at the time uh, sociology psychology and politics uh- and actually, the the irony of the story is, so I was squatting various houses and ended up squatting a house owned by or run by a, a Buddhist housing association. And of course, being Buddhist, they were very nice. They didn't kick us out. And I got to know them and they clearly saw I needed some help. And they said, you should check out the meditation center around the corner. So in, in this part of London called the East End, Bethnal Green, very rough, run down, depressed part of London at the time and i ended up in this beautiful oasis of a meditation center in in this part of town and it just you know my eyes it just it completely transformed my life when i walked in there
1: was there a period of time where you were engaging with the the punk movement and music as well as sort of having had the
0: seed planted with buddhist meditation yeah there was there was definitely a transition it was my second year in college and it was a it was challenging because i i both was feeling really drawn to this uh, both inner cultivation of mind and heart and at the same time it was also my friends and my work life were sort of a, you know centered around you know basically smashing the establishment <laughs> <laughs> and the dharma teachings are really about smashing anything that's you know that's the what buddhism they call it defilements really you know the thing the obstructions of mind and heart that cause us suffering so one's very out of focus thinking the problems outside and one's saying look no actually the root of all of our suffering is in our own mind and reactivity and that's what we're actually trying to undermine so there was definitely some tension and I eventually found myself leaning more towards the inner inner life and, and, and contemplation and realize because of my own suffering that I need, I need to do that work for myself.
1: How much of it do you think personally for you was about internal suffering versus the external rebellion towards forces such as the, uh, the political issues of the time?
0: You know, I think it's hard to separate. I, I think for myself, Definitely the internal pain and, and, and frustration and anger that was really coming towards myself got redirected out. Mm. And, mm. Um, and at the same time, uh, that seeing, seeing the, the dysfunction of society at the time and the institutions that felt like weren't serving people, especially the, the poor... I think it was it was a way of, of generalizing the personal suffering, right? Different forces, different causes, ultimately probably all having the same root cause, which is our own greed and, you know, hatred and ignorance. And so now I see them very much one of a piece. But at the time, I felt like I had to leave that outer demonstration and work with my own mind because I felt like I was just adding to the mess and the confusion and the suffering, the reactivity, because I wasn't really that, you know, skillful or wise.
1: One thing that's very interesting about your work in terms of how it relates to your story is when I think about punk, I think about um, urbanization for the most part, but nature is so important to you. I was wondering if you could speak a bit about how that, yeah, about how that change happened for you.
0: Mm. Yeah. So so I was in London at the time and I uh, ended up dropping out of college, finding Buddhist path, moving into a Buddhist center in the country. And it was really my first time. I mean, I'd grown up on the edges of farmland and was not far from the coast, but I wasn't really in nature. And then when I discovered this this center that I lived in for a few years and in the middle of farming community and uh, in, in Norfolk and beautiful countryside, the dovetailing of meditation and nature really went together. And it was like, I was like waking up to nature, waking up to meditation, waking up to myself, waking up to the possibility of being not so embroiled in one's mind and, and suffering. And so, you know, I haven't really thought about it in that way, but there was something very potent about seeing how nature was, was a similar support for the mind and the heart and, and the nervous system to open, to relax, to become present. You know, nature allures our attention, and that was very o- obvious for me back then. You know, growing up in oh no, being in college in East London, I didn't want to be that present because it was kind of grotty and rundown and yeah. concrete and kind of depressed, mm-hmm. and it wasn't very inviting to be present for. Whereas when I was out in the country, it was like, oh, of course, I want to be here for spring and the, the you know the icicles in winter and the storms of summer and whatnot change. So when you hear the words EPA or
1: Scott Pruitt or <laughs> Ryan Zinke, uh, do you do you experience anger at at seeing uh, like ecological rollbacks or? Yeah. Can you take me through your, your personal sort of uh, experience of infuriating ecological news?
0: Yeah. It, you know, it's, 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 it's a process and it's complex. I, uh, with this new administration, I originally felt, you know, outrage, horror, fear, terror. The old punk sensation. <laughs> right. <laughs> Anger. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um and and that's you know i think if one cares about something and 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 there's there's political will to do things that will harm it like mining and you know oil development and you know you know reducing the size of national parks etc then yeah i felt i felt uh i felt outraged and shocked actually that that was so blatant and, um, you know, just unapologetic. But I also do take some solace or refuge in my practice in that I also know that that's human nature, right? That, that you know, human, uh, human nature in its current form as a species is not that evolved. It's mm. driven by forces of greed, of ignorance, Of hatred, so what can we expect? You know, not to say we don't we roll we roll over passively, but it's like of course, if people think that they can make more money mining and drilling, then of course they're going to do that because that's the imperative in their worldview, and that's more important worldview than say protecting keeping the water clean or keeping the you know the the rivers free from pollution. So I get you know that. That bigger perspective that that's, of course, what humans, some humans choose to do out of their own worldview. And I also see that, you know, sometimes where the practice helps is I can make myself crazy thinking about this stuff. Yeah. And I know it's not so helpful. Like, I know what's going on. I stay informed. I do read a lot. And I also make sure I go out and hike and I walk to the ocean and I feel the waves and I notice that spring is coming after the rains even though we've had this horrific fires caused partly by climate change and also the green hills are coming back and the flowers are coming back and so I make sure I balance my nose against the grindstone of the the hard ecological data with you know both the beauty that's still here and I also focus on the tremendous amount of people and actions and demonstrations and creativity It's going towards climate solutions. And, you know, in, in any simple example, the, when this administration pulled us out of the, the, the Paris uh, climate agreement, there was a, a, a movement started the day that it happened, um, initiated by some activists in, in Bloomberg, called We're Still In. Uh, and there was a co- coalition of businesses, mayors, cities, states, saying despite what the administration is doing, we're committed to honoring the, the Paris climate agreements. And so 50% of those agreements that happened in Paris a few years ago are now being met. 50% of all of America's commitments are being met despite the inaction of the government. Mm. So I take refuge in that that's happening too. Mm. And it's very easy for for many of us to just focus on these seemingly outrageous things and yet not seeing the bigger picture still important to dress those things but also seeing yes and there's also tremendous waking up happening tremendous creative actions and solutions to these things in a way it almost feels like the
1: process that you're going through dovetails in some way with the subject of your second book which is make peace with your mind which I read as uh, an investigation into the the inner critic and that the outer critic and those two focuses inner and outer being in, in indelibly intertwined.
0: Yeah, no certainly that the the inner critic and actually it's really what Started me on the whole path because my critic when I first when I was a young man was was wretched It was was, I was brutal with myself really a lot of self-hatred a lot of anger And it was mostly turned inwards and turned outwards and it was crippling It was really damaging and and it was that level of suffering that got me into the practice Through mindfulness, but particularly through loving kindness and self-compassion practices that really began to change over time but yes, as you say, that that critic can go inwards, can go outwards, and it's basically it's it's the negativity bias that we have, you know, hardwired into our brain, given voice and let loose, and just you know <laughs> fixates on everything that's wrong, problematic with ourselves, with others, with the world, and when we live in that worldview, you know, we see the world very negatively, mm-hmm. and uh, it doesn't help ourselves. It doesn't actually motivate it motivate us to act. And it's not the basis for the clarity that we need to really engage well. And uh, it leads to a very distorted perception and 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 re- reduce well-being. Since you've
1: literally written the book on this subject, I'm curious to know how much progress have you made on embracing the, the inner critic, becoming friends with uh, the inner critic?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, I don't so much put it in that framework of making friends with the critic. Um, some people do, and I think that's a fine way of, you know, sort of disarming the enemy, as it were. Um, I see it more as um, just becoming less uh, influenced by it. Less, I, I listen to it less. Uh, I don't care what it has to say. I know what it's going to say. It's predictable. <laughs> it comes up at certain times when I don't do something right or forget something or, you know... Um, it's an old voice and it's an old habitual pattern that um you know usually comes about because there's some vulnerability present that is trying to in its misguided attempt protect us from so it's more like it's like it's like a, a friend who's giving us bad advice but it's sort of well-intentioned but it's like okay yeah thanks for your thanks for your advice but you know, i'm okay I, I got this one <laughs> we're good <laughs> and it's like and it's just like you know kind of patting its head and it's like it's okay thanks for that you know opinion and i'm i'm good i'm, I'm, I'm i can take care of this i can see this clearly and so it's more I, I just don't give it that much attention and i know when it's present and i know what's going to say and i just you know oh hello old friend you know, <laughs> have a nice day and i'm <laughs> going to get back to whatever it is i'm doing thank you very much <laughs> what i'm well, the main thing i notice is generally we don't it, prior to either doing any you know, inner work, meditation work, work on the critic, psychological work. The we take the voice of the critic as just normal, as just part of my mind, part of being human, and don't even give it the time of day in terms of thinking about whether it's useful or not, or objective or real or truthful. It's just part of the furniture. And so once we start to bring attention to it, then sometimes people can make radical shifts. I you think. Know, definitely work with students who, you know, got this toolbox of skills that I mentioned and I write about in the book. And um, very quickly, the, the critic mostly does, loses most of its power. Mm. And, but for the most part, it's a longer-term process. You know, most inner work is, is a long-term <laughs> process. But with a combination of the recognition, the seeing it with mindfulness and clarity the cultivation of kindness and self-compassion, both compassion for the pain and self-love to, to really you know, sort of build up the, the, the balance of, of, of positive self-regard and seeing ourselves clearly and kindly and just over time helping mitigate then the erosive corrosive impact of these negative words and, and ideas and views. So I think of it as a, as a long-term project that over time definitely uh, diminishes in students. If, if we do the work, like with anything, we have to do the work, we have to keep up the awareness of it, the kindness of it towards oneself, the forgiveness of one's mistakes. and It's like a multi-pronged approach. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just have a few more questions for you. You've
1: been a meditation teacher for a good long time now. What is it about helping people with meditation that has kept you Excited, kept you interested in this field in a continuing way. Well, it's a great question.
0: Um, I mean, there's, there's, there's many layers. One is um, I've seen how tremendously helpful all these practices have been for me, particularly mindfulness, loving kindness, compassion. And so, I want to share them because it's like here's the good news: like we can do something <laughs> about our own pain and struggles and challenges and life. And um, and the, you know it's a very sort of you know I'm I'm a, I'm a socialist at heart you know maybe this goes back to my anarchist roots but it's like these practices are free they're available you can take them you can use them for a lifetime and they really make a difference they transform one's life you know in a very beautiful profound way so just giving that gift to people uh, is just a great it's just such a blessing it's a privilege and and a delight to know you know to help people genuinely find ways to free themselves from pain to find greater happiness and freedom like that's what better thing could i be doing with my life you know so there's there's a lot of joy and as a teacher it's also infinitely uh, creative and you know the path never stops like there's no end like oh i did all this work and i suddenly got enlightened and then i'm you know in retirement no it's like it continually is organic and it moves and i learn things and i study with teachers and things shift in my own understanding and practice and so there's a delight in 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 feeling that dynamism in one's work and um and then of course with the nature work i i just want people to know how profoundly moving it can be to be in nature with this contemplative awareness and how transformative and healing and joyful and delightful it is you know it's like I can't think of anything more beautiful than being in nature with this presence. Do you worry at
1: all about future generations and their access to technology like for instance I think there's a new Kind of cool thing happening with uh, virtual reality headsets, where people can put on these these new pieces of app, pieces of technology, this apparatus, and suddenly they're transported into some some calming landscape with sweet music or something like that. I don't know. What, do you have any opinion around that?
0: Well, I did some for the New York Times. <laughs> 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 it was a virtual. Re- they have a virtual reality app, meditation app, and um, you know different landscapes, and I was you know. Uh, Doing some meditations over the uh, the, the video, and um, you know these days the the most common doorway for people to access meditation is through technology. You know meditation apps. You know Calm has 20, 20 million users. Insight Timer has four or five million users. So there's probably more people accessing meditation now through their phones than through any place like Esalen or Spirit Rock or wherever I teach. Um, so that's just the reality. And, and it's like, how great, you know, you can either, you know, get lost on your phone or you can actually get conscious with your phone. So, you know, it's part of the landscape. And uh, most meditations I know, most meditation teachers I know are um, embracing it, you know, and, and contributing to apps and guided meditations and all kinds of things that really speak to people. You know, I think the pace of life we live at you know, most people aren't going to go to a meditation center for a week or a month or a year and meditate for an hour at a time. It's just not, the, it's just not what most people are going to do. And, But they might meditate for five minutes a day or the kids might meditate with them for two minutes a day or they might do a 20-minute meditation with an app at lunchtime. And if that's what gets people to practice, then that's great. You know, one of my teachers talked about uh, he said, think about the practice of as short moments many times, sh- short moments many times. So rather than going off to a cave for 10 years, no, you know, a minute here, five minutes here, 10 minutes there. The more that we remember presence, mindfulness, kindness throughout the day, the more we start to live these qualities. So we're, we're using technology anyway. So let's at least find ways to use it for for presence and 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 mindfulness and not just all the other things it can take all the all the other ways that it erodes our attention mm. yes
1: uh mark coleman how can our listeners uh find out more about you listen to some of the work that you've done
0: yeah so the main place is uh my website mark m-a-r-k coleman.org and uh that has all my listings retreats and books and audios and meditations talks and all kinds of free stuff on there so check that out and i'm on a bunch of different apps like insight timer and um another great app is called dharma seed it has hundreds of my talks on there um, d-h-a-r-m-a seed um but mostly my website is the easiest place to get hold of me and um, I have a forthcoming book out um, in May, it's called From Suffering to Peace, The True Promise of Mindfulness, and so I'll be putting up information on my website about that and uh, excited to share more the deeper roots of mindfulness teaching and how they, how we can live them and apply them in a very real way in our lives.
1: And if students were interested in, in studying with you in an immersive nature, um, a way, how, how would they find out about the programs that you offer?
0: Yeah. So on my, on the website, markcolman.org, there's a full calendar listings and I run many nature-based retreats, residential from Mexico to California and beyond. And I teach at Spirit Rock and all the information's on the website.
1: Okay. Well, everyone should hop on that while we still have nature and an environment for Mark to teach in. Mark Coleman, thanks so much for, for being with us today on Voices of Esalen. Thanks, Sam. What a pleasure. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Frenzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to subscribe, rate us, and review. You can also find all of our episodes at our website, Esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Programs like this one are made possible by the support of our donors. Thank you so much for your contributions to our world.